Pints with Jack, Season 4, Episode 51. After Hours with Owen A. Barfield. Welcome, everyone. Pints with Jack is your weekly C.S. Lewis podcast where Matt, Andrew, and I break down and discuss the works of C.S. Lewis. This season, we're eavesdropping on the correspondence of a senior demon, Screwtape, as he explains how to tempt the patient, a human assigned to be tempted by Screwtape's nephew, Wormwood. Each week, we'll be considering a different letter, untwisting Screwtape's hellish logic, and forming a battle plan for our own spiritual lives. However, today is a Thursday, meaning that it's an after-hours episode, and I'll be interviewing a guest to kick off Barfield Month. And today, I'm going to be speaking to Owen Barfield. Now, listeners, today's episode is published on April Fool's Day, and so you might think that this episode is an April Fool's joke. You know, after all, it's 2021. There is no way that C.S. Lewis's friend, Owen Barfield, could be talking to us today. And I actually had a similar thought a couple of years ago when I received an email from Owen Barfield. And after a little bit of confusion and a little bit of Googling, I discovered that this Owen Barfield was the grandson of the Inkling. And he also lived fairly close to where I grew up. So on my next trip to England, my wife and I got to meet up with Owen at a lovely pub for a delicious fish and chip meal about a mile away from the Benedictine Monastery where I normally go to Mass when I'm back home. So with that cleared up, Owen Barfield, welcome to Pints with Jack. Thanks very much, David, and thank you for making me feel so welcomed. I appreciate what you're doing here, and in very many ways, you're breaking new ground. So congratulations on taking this initiative. Thank you very much. Now, it's been a couple of years since I've been back to England. Since then, I have got married. (laughs) Uh, But I have to admit, I'm missing my family, but I'm also missing a real good pint of ale and a decent plate of fish and chips. Uh, The fish and chips are always here waiting for you, but uh, may I congratulate you on your marriage? And uh, you're a very lucky man, David. So England is here, but at least your wife is with you. That is the perfect answer. (laughs) Would you mind telling us a little bit more about yourself? Well, I'm married and I've got two uh, daughters, um, teenage daughters, I had a fairly regular life. Grandfather to me was just grandfather, nothing more. But he did die when I was 28 years old. He was so long lived that um, I got to know him well. I was the only grandchild and I would regularly visit him. In fact, I enjoyed visiting him. It was strange that um, I'd go by myself. So one month my parents would go to his house and the other month I would go alternatively, almost because I preferred to have him all to myself rather than to have to share him with my parents. It was a different kind of relationship. So we were close and um, I still still do miss him. But to me, he was just grandfather. I wasn't aware of very much else until I was aged 33 and I had a mystical experience in that monastery, which you just referred to. I was there, had a such a strong experience I was wondering, what was that about? And I couldn't shake off grandfather. It was six years after grandfather had died, and I just couldn't shake off the idea of him. And so that's when I started my quest into, you know, what did he do? What was he writing about? Why had I had that experience? It took me three years to talk to his then literary executors, 
and they then retired one by one. He had four of them, and they each appointed me. So now I'm the only literary executor. But it took me three years to sort of get up to speed to convince them to hand over to me. And I started doing this almost as a vocation in 2008. Wonderful. I think it gives us some real background as to where you're coming from here. Uh, let's move on and do some housekeeping, and then we'll get on to our main discussion. So we have a number of sections, and the first is the quote of the week. And this comes from the dedication in your grandfather's book, Poetic Diction. To C.S. Lewis, opposition is true friendship. I love that. <laughs> well, hopefully we'll unpack that a little bit more later. The next thing is the drink of the week. And given the time difference, you're in England, I'm here on the west coast of the States. It's rather early, so I'm actually just having a nice cup of tea. Uh, are you drinking anything? Well, I've got in my hand a sherry glass, and this is actually grandfather's sherry glass, because every time I went to visit him, we'd always, um, before our lunch, and I'd go for lunchtime, we'd start with a glass of sherry, uh, him and I. He always had a bottle of glass and a uh, bottle and two glasses to, to share. So um, I'm drinking from his sherry glass, but I'm not drinking sherry. I'm drinking a herb tea that I made myself. So I grow the herbs and then I brew the, the thing. Because I've given up Lent uh, for Lent alcohol, and this is the first time I've done that, and I just wanted to have that experience of abstinence for 40 days, and it's quite a powerful experience. I am enjoying giving something up in that way. <laughs> I love it. I, I think our grandfathers would have got on. Your description of your grandfather and spending time with him put me in mind of the time I spent with my mother's father. And like your grandfather, mine also really loved sherry. Even when I was a little boy, when I would turn up at his house, the first thing we would do was go and pick out what sherry we we're going to have after dinner and what wine we we're going to drink with dinner. <laughs> now, normally at this point, we would toast a gold level supporter on Patreon. But since we're starting Barfield Month today, I thought we would toast your grandfather. So to the first and last inkling. Cheers. Cheers. Now, we sort of jumped in at the deep end before. Listeners to our podcast, they're going to be familiar with C.S. Lewis, but many will not know too much about this other inkling, your grandfather, Owen Barfield. Can you please introduce him a little bit to us and tell us a little bit about his life? Okay. Well, grandfather um, lived a long life of 99 years. He did not want to live to be 100. I asked him and he said he didn't want to. And being the kind of man in control, um, he popped off shortly after his 99th birthday when he wanted to in his own bed, in his own place, in his own time and way. Now, I think of his life as lived very much in three equal parts. The first part was when he was the poet and the literary man. The middle part when he was a sort of family man earning a living and being a lawyer. And then the final part when he was being a professor, a teacher, particularly in America, where he had lots of visiting appointments. And each of these parts are quite uh, significant. And in this way of looking at things, this threefold look way of looking at things is quite Barfieldian, as he would say as well. So you're having to match two polarities, one at both ends, and then the thing in the middle. We can go into the, that kind of ideas. But I just want to introduce that as a kind of way of thinking. So these are the ways that grandfather would have thought about himself, about life, about philosophy. This is what interested him, that threefold way of thinking. 
And what about his occupation? What was his job? Well, he was professionally a lawyer. Um, so he had hoped to be an author and poet, and he wrote a long novel, had quite a few books published. But then round about the time of the Great Depression for financial constraints and the need to go and support his father in the family's law firm, he uh, trained to be a lawyer in his 30s and then joined the family law firm. So professionally, he was that, which is why when people talk about Barfield, they tend to think of him as a lawyer or C.S. Lewis's lawyer, which, of course, he was. He, he dealt with all C.S. Lewis's matters. And in fact, he was C.S. Lewis's literary executor as well. Well, then let's talk about Lewis. How did his paths cross with him? They met right at the very beginning of their stay at Oxford University. So when they first went up to university, they met within the first week or so. They were introduced by a, a mutual friend called Leo Baker. And they both got on because they both saw themselves as poets. So because they identified themselves as poets, they had this friendship based on poetry. And in Surprised by Joy, Lewis talks about a great war that he had with your grandfather. What was that about? Well, that great war took place over many years, almost eight years or so. And it was really about many, many things, but it's where grandfather was thrashing out his philosophy. And Lewis was his second friend in this. He was the sort of person against which he could push to test his philosophy. So that's why they describe themselves as second friends, because they were taking adversarial positions. But it's through that that the philosophy emerged. And of course, they both influenced each other enormously, both learned one thing or another from the other. But what it was specifically about, I would have to say, is the importance of the imagination and what imagination um, leads to. But the consequences of it was that when that great war started, Lewis was an atheist. And by the end of it, grandfather had turned him to being a theist. So you could say that first step of going from atheist to theist is through grandfather and through the Great War discussions they had. Yeah, you often hear people talking about Tolkien's role in Lewis's conversion, but I often think that they skip over far too quickly all of the all of the work and all of the battlefields that he he fought over with your grandfather to get him to the point of accepting theism, which is rather a necessary prerequisite to believe in Christianity. In many ways, it's the hardest one. Once you accept the divinity, then your paths are open to refine it. But it's that first step, which is a really hard step to take. Now, your grandfather was a member of the Inklings, and he's often referred to as being the first and the last Inkling. Why is that? Why was he the first and why is he the last? He was the first because he was first to publish a book. It was a fairy tale, and the title was The Silver Trumpet. And that fairy tale was published in 1925 by Faber and Faber, or the predecessor of Faber and Faber. Um, that fairy tale very much influenced both Lewis and Tolkien because it provided proof of concept. When Tolkien read that book to his children, they he could see that by the means of a fairy tale, you were actually communicated quite complex philosophy. 
So it's a proof of concept book, uh, The Silver Trumpet. And he was the first to do that in that early year, 1925. He was the last because he outlived all the others. He died in 1997. So that brings us up to the kind of period of time that we're more comfortable with. You know, he's not a distant historical figure. He's somebody that lived in our times. And so he was the last inkling for that reason. It is pretty wild to think that there was an inkling living so recently. When I think of Tolkien, when I think of Lewis and the others, I think of them as a a solid generation removed, something almost quite remote. But your grandfather shows that actually it's not that long ago. (laughs) Yeah. Now, we've spoken a little bit about Lewis's development of thought and religiosity. What was your grandfather's journey? I'm sorry, David, I was just distracted because you were talking about time scales. And I said that grandfather lived 99 years and what 99 year- years refers to. And there's only been 20 batches of 99 years since Christ uh, walked the earth. So <laughs> you know, when you think about time scales, you know, we're, we're not that far removed from the time that Christ was here. You know, we think we're far removed, but we haven't actually... We're still in the same kind of epoch, um, if you like. And again, that would be grandfather's uh, philosophy. Sorry, I got distracted. Um, (laughs) No worries. So he was raised in an agnostic family, a non-religious family. Um, There was no religion in his background, if you like. He came to Rudolf Steiner and Anthroposophy through uh, his friend, Cecil Harwood, who was his first friend, his best friend from school. And uh, together they sort of discovered anthroposophy together when they were about 23 years old. That started. And grandfather came to religion through his philosophy. So through his studies and through his ideas, which began at school, at, at, at school age, he kind of worked out that religion and particularly the spiritual world must exist, must be real, if you like. So his philosophy comes out of an evidential uh, process. And his training as a lawyer came in handy because throughout his work and all his books, he's providing evidence. He's laying down an evidential kind of legal argument. They're not legalistic books, but his mind has been trained to think as a lawyer making a case. And he was always making the case for Christianity. You mentioned anthroposophy and Rudolf Steiner. How would you describe anthroposophy? Because it's not the easiest thing to put in a box. (laughs) Well, anthroposophy, let's just define the word. So anthro means man and Sophia comes from divine wisdom. So it's the divine wisdom in man. That's what we're interested in. So it's an attention to finding the divinity or the sacred in all of us. But most importantly, and where they differ, I would say, is the individual I is is an expression of the divine. So where that individual I can be found and, if you like, evolved, that is the direction that the divinity is taking. Okay. 
I'm sure we will be circling back to this in the next section because what I want to do now is to talk about your father's works and key ideas. Can you give us a broad picture of what he did and what he thought? Okay, well, let's just start by saying I'm not qualified in an academic sense to do so, but I'll try my best. And we'll start with that quote that you read out, which was in the book Poetic Diction. And many people turn to Poetic Diction because they associate it with Lewis. And some people read it and then sort of put it down because they don't quite get it. But other people consider it a nearly sacred book. And I just want to summarize that, but in my own words, by saying that grandfather's interest in language and studying language and how language evolved, through that, he found evidence that humanity evolves by individual acts of the imagination. So humanity is evolving thanks to our use of the imagination. And then he can track that down to a divine presence. The thing that I got from that book is your grandfather seemed to think that words had real power. There's a lot of lip service that people paid that, oh, words are powerful. No, I think your grandfather really believed it such that it could shape someone's consciousness and even shape the direction in which humanity is heading. Correct. Correct. And his favorite quotes was St. John's, in the beginning, there was the word. You know, he just kept on going back to that quote. Why does that start? Now, why does the gospel start with that? Because it's a statement of fact. You know, that's where things began. And so the nature of his philosophy and anthroposophy is to take things seriously, but really seriously, to really think about things. And thinking itself is a divine spiritual activity as well. You know, even the thought, thinking about thinking, which grandfather called beta thinking, is a divine activity. What I just wanted to wrap up with about poetic diction is that it's his thesis. He wrote it as an undergraduate uh, scholar, and he wrote it at Oxford University. And there was no supervisor that could follow him or understand the argument at the time. But they gave him, you know, the award anyway. Um, But it was always there on the back burner until he actually published it um, quite a few years later in 1928. It was his his third published book. But before that, he published a book called History in English Words. And History in English Words is much more accessible. It's a very nice book. Um, It's a philology book, so it has a lot in common with Tolkien. Um, And that's a good place to start, History in English Words. Now. We've used the word imagination a lot already, and that's because it's kind of key. But I wanted to demonstrate or illustrate how grandfather thought about it in the context of three other words. So if you think of it as a set of words, starting with intuition, then we have inspiration, and then imagination. Okay, they're kind of building blocks, one building on the other. And we think of intuition we have a real strong sense of it coming from within us outwards. You know, I intuit. There's a lot of people that struggle with imagination. They might even say, I don't have an imagination, or I'm uncomfortable with imagination, or I don't like fiction, you know. Um, but <laughs> intuition, a lot of people have got intuition. A lot of people have got it. And they feel that it comes from within outwards. Then we have the word inspiration. And just by understanding that word, it's 
standing where the spirit comes into us inspiration we have a very strong sense of something coming from outside and into us we feel it don't we and then again looking at imagination in this imaginative way imagination comes from us towards the outside okay so here we're starting to see a rhythm develop in from inwards outwards outwards inwards inwards outwards a bit like breathing a bit like sleeping a bit like the rhythms of nature and so un, what we're doing here is unpicking we started to think about the words imaginatively we're starting to think about how they affect us how we feel about those words how we understand them and we're building a picture which we then can apply to the whole of nature the rhythms of nature you know from a seed to a tree to death you know the rhythms of nature and this is what grandfather was interested in this is his philosophy this is what he was explaining now grandfather was helpful in that he knew he was laying down some difficult terms and ideas so he had little shortcuts and he used this with lewis all the time but they also he also used it in his literature and one of the ones that i quite like is unresolved residue of positivism so this is a term that he uses it's a sort of catchy term which means something but what does it mean unresolved residue of positivism well positivism is this philosophy that we're living in at the moment it's a sort of reductive materialism and positivism is the name that used to be given to that before we called it reductive materialism so in grandfather's time is called positivism and grandfather was the arch fighter against positivism in fact he kind of led the other inklings or he was the champion inkling to to name and call out positivism that's what he did that's what his uh, calling was if you like so he was fighting against positivism but the the positivism that we live in which has really come about in the modern period so in the last 400 years or so has led us down certain paths and certain ways of understanding things if we had gone in other paths or different ways of thinking we'd have got to other places but we've gone down this path and this has led us to our current dead end grandfather would say and that's the residue of positivism so we're living right now with the residue of positivism so many of the kind of afflictions that humanity is currently suffering did not exist 600 years ago you know these are kind of they call them modern afflictions but they've been with us and they've been building up in the modern period and it's the effect of those which is the residue so you have the residue of the unresolved positivism and once you get that in in your mind you understand what grandfather sort of saying by this it gives you a small tiny glimpse into what his concern was his concern was about humanity and where society is right now so is it the idea that we still have philosophical assumptions and ideas and modes of speaking that are a hangover from positivism that we often don't even recognize and that in itself is limiting correct absolutely and they're not even hangovers you know we are in the main street this is we're going full steam ahead we're going mm. full steam ahead in this direction and it's not just that it's a limiting it's a taboo subject you can't even bring it up 
this is the ultimate taboo. Grandfather calls it the great taboo with capital letters. To, to call this out gets you into trouble. Okay, I think I got it. <laughs> <laughs> and I'll just round off with probably his best known book, which is Saving the Appearances. Now, everybody refers to that. And that's where he kind of lays out his philosophy in greatest detail. But it's still only a superficial book, you know, but it's quite a good um, book to, to really get into the idea. And the idea that Grandfather is trying to communicate in that book is that humanity in a sort of prehistoric period lived in a state which was quite different to us. So consciousness of humanity in that period was very different to consciousness now. It was a consciousness which received things from the outside. A bit how when I said we receive inspiration from that, our understanding of that word inspiration the humanity at that period received everything from the outside. Every, all their senses were derived from the outside coming in. They did not have that kind of intuition, which I was referring to. Uh, humanity, and then grandfather calls that original participation, being in that state of original participation. Humanity then, with time and with progress and with history, moved away from original participation and it's a bit like a U-curve, if you like. And so we're starting at the top of one end of the U, going down, down, down. So we bottom out to the very bottom of the U-curve. There was a turning point. And that turning point was the incarnation of Christ. So it's because Christ incarnated, the word made flesh, that humanity and the condition of humanity was able to change direction and start its ascent. So humanity started going up the other arm of the U-curve towards what grandfather called it final participation. So we are still evolving in our consciousness towards final participation. It's where we will intend to go, but it's not a given. I was referring to the I, the divine I in us individuals. The point about anthroposophy and what grandfather would argue is that we as individuals, that divine I, need to discover this for ourselves. We need to discover this in order to reach that final participation. And the difference between final participation and original participation is that we'll reach there as individuals, not as a group called humanity. You know, we will reach there as individuals. Now, where we are, well, we're still right down there at the bottom of the U. So when I said it's only been 20 times 99, you know, since Christ was on, you know, we're still right down there at the bottom. We've got thousands and thousands of years to evolve upwards. We've still got a long way to go, but at least we're going in the right direction. And it's because of that incarnation of the Christ event that we can now uh, recognize things from within us going outward. So... When I said imagination is a sense of something within us, which we then express and we express it outwardly, it's only possible because of the incarnation of Christ. There was a felt change of consciousness for humanity at that moment in time. What did he see the incarnation as actually doing to bring that about? What is it about the incarnation of the second person of the Trinity brings this sea change in consciousness. Okay, I'm a little bit out of my depths here, 
but I'm I'm going to say that he united the divine joined with the human. By okay. by joining with the human, he then made it possible for humanity to be more Christ-like. Okay, so that ties in very easily with normal Christian orthodoxy. Uh, Athanasius, God became man so that man could become God. The idea that uh, what Christ united to himself, he then elevated. These are not novel ideas. I'm not saying that grandfather made this up or said it for the first time. These have got a history as long as Christianity is. It's just understanding it. It's for the common man in the street to understand and say in it in a way that each generations will renew and understand anew. So what does that mean in practical terms? That you have the Christ event, you have the incarnation, and you 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 now have a, a shift in consciousness. What does that practically mean and what does that almost look like? How can we tell that that's happened? It's the individual eye. So there's a sense of um individuality which didn't exist previously so that's and then everything that comes out of that you know human society how we structure ourselves um, our relationships with other people having this individual eye and the, uh, the awareness of the christ event changes if you like the direction of travel hmm. let's go on and talk about uh, somebody else that people might have heard of. Because uh, while many Lewis fans uh, may not even really know the name Owen Barfield, or if they do, they don't know much about him, they will definitely recognize the name Lucy Barfield because she was the recipient of the dedication found in The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. And when you and I met for that lovely fish and chip lunch, uh, you told us a little bit more about Lucy Barfield. Who was she? Well, Lucy was my my aunt, but she was also C.S. Lewis's goddaughter. And as the dedication points out, you know, he he sort of wrote that book for Lucy and dedicated it to Lucy. Lucy uh, grew up to be a dancer and musician. She taught music and dance. But at quite a young age, in her mid-30s, she was struck down with multiple sclerosis. So she had this terrible, debilitating disease. And all my life, she had this, this disease. And she was for 40 years really suffering, you know, and, and suffering in a way that's almost unimaginable to somebody who is not in that condition of, you know, being bedridden and hospitalized. There's a spiritual dimension to this, which I, I don't want to go into, but, you know, that it, it, um, it is an extraordinary thing, you know. So she was, from being very artistic, she wrote poems, drew some drawings. These can be seen in the Wade Center, in the Marion E. Wade Center, uh, to being struck down like this. It, it was um, a terrible thing. But I also want to just touch on the fact that um, the name Lucy is significant. So, both Lucy and uh, C.S. Lewis used the name Lu Lucy in their literature. And Grandfather did it from a very early age. And every sort of female character, a bit like that, he used Lucy. And um, then he named his daughter Lucy. I named my daughter Lucy as well. <laughs> but um, as an aside, but um, 
but Lewis did the same. And what Lucy really means is it's the guiding spirit for the English people. So that's what they understood. And they took that from Wordsworth. So the romantic poet Wordsworth gave them this idea, this imagery of Lucy as the spirit of the English, if you like. And that's why they they always sort of went there. You know, they, they, that's where their, their, their go-to name, because of what it signifies. Now, these people, both grandfather and Lewis, they are people that look things up in books. So every time I go and visit grandfather, you know, any question or stuff like that, it, it wasn't Wikipedia. It was a book that he had on a shelf, you know. So he was constantly getting up, looking something up in the book. Even in his 90s, he was like physical. The physicality of book, bookishness um, always struck me. And how he knew how to find things in books is another thing. You know? And that's a sort of a lifetime of experience. Anyway, they, it was second nature to look things up in books. So naturally, I think Lewis would have looked up the name Lucy in a, in a book of saints that he, he would presumably have as a reference book. And in there, you see somewhere Blessed Lucy of Narnia. And I think that's probably where the name Narnia came from, because if you, if you start with the, the name Lucy, it takes you to Narnia in quite a few steps. Not many steps. You get to Narnia very quickly. And it kind of has a certain ring to it, and so that's where Narnia um, comes from. But it, the, you start with Lucy. So it's always about starting with the spirit of Englishness. And also, St. Lucy is the patron saint of eyesight, about seeing clearly, which is why in the Chronicles of Narnia, Lucy is always the one who sees clearly. It's funny that you mentioned about looking up things in books. When I was a child, I was I was a very inquisitive child. I was the one that would pester my parents with questions all the time. And there was nothing that killed my interest more than my mother saying, we'll have to look that up in the encyclopedia when we get home. <laughs> David, if I may say, it's not just your parents you've pestered with questions. You've done that to me this evening. <laughs> <laughs> Good. That means I'm doing my job right. <laughs> Uh, one thing that you brought up was Lucy's love of dance. And that reminded me of something that we didn't say, that your grandfather was also a very keen dancer. Yes. What kind of dance did he do? Well done for picking up on that. I don't know what you, you I don't know how you get your, your, your information, but um, it's quite extraordinary um, that he, when I asked grandfather, tell me about your life, tell me about these things, he would never get beyond when he was 22 years old and he joined a dance tour of Cornwall called the Roseland Concerts, which happened for two years in the summer. And he just wouldn't say anything more. <laughs> more <laughs> you know, he's lived a long life, but he's never sort of moved beyond telling me about how he was a dancer. And that, that was a folk dance and they had very many roles so many da dancers from across europe they'd studied and then they were reviving them they were bringing them in and maud who would then become his wife uh, was the instigator of that so maud had invited him to join this tour because they were lacking in male dancers and he responded to to a request that she'd put out to the oxford university students and um that's where his sort of relationship with grandmother began, but that's where his his whole relationship, because grandfather said that although he considered himself a poet and poetry was so important, and we've discussed words and the meaning of words, he said music is even more fundamental. M music it has priority over poetry in terms of its significance. 
didn't he say that if he was forced to choose, he would choose music? Yes, he did. Yeah. And am I right in saying he was also a very physical guy generally? Wasn't he a gymnast? Yeah. So a gymnast at school, kind of quite a sports kind of person. Um, He played golf with his parents. And the houses that they lived in, they always had a dance studio. So, you know, I still remember the house they had. There was this big room at the back called the studio. By then it was full of junk, but it still had a grand piano in the corner. And it's clearly the place where they kind of put on little acts and did improvisations. And I was told by uh, an American who had been guiding both of them around America whilst he was a professor there. So this man was quite elderly when he told me, but he he just had such a strong image. He was driving grandfather and grandmother to a place in the car. The radio was on. And then grandfather suddenly said, stop the car, stop the car. We need to get out. So he pulled up on the side of an American road. More than him got out. And to the music on the radio, they started ballroom dancing. And this American <laughs> was just sat there in his car, speechless. <laughs> then they got back in the car and said, we can carry on now. So he was desperate to tell me this little anecdote, which had obviously stuck with him all his life. But, uh, you know, it just shows that for them as a couple, music and dance was so important. I love that so much. <laughs> Both the love of music, the love of dance, and just messing with Americans. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's probably the most. Yeah. As we draw to a close, can you tell us a little bit about the current state of Owen Barfield's studies today? What's going on? What do you think are going to be some hopeful areas of research? Where do you see things going? Well, David, I think you've kicked it off. So thank you very much. (laughs) (laughs) Here we are. This is is it. We are in the moment. Um, I do see more and more people sort of finding grandfather and I'm getting more and more sort of anecdotal and sort of emails coming through but it's still a a drip feed but grandfather in his own life felt that he only had the audience of one person and that was c.s lewis and when lewis passed away lewis was still his audience you know he was still writing for lewis uh, and lewis was that kind of second friend that he was still debating with so grandfather himself never looked for an audience and there's so there's no traditional history of of having an audience or a readership but when I was with grandfather and we were packing up precisely that studio that I just referred to, which was full of junk. And I was helping going through it and looking at things. He was sat down in a chair as an old man, you know, sometimes does looking back, you know, surrounded by stuff. And for no apparent reason, he said, it'll be 50 years before my work is understood. And I don't know why, but it just was so out of character, such a strange thing to say that I just remember him saying that. So if you take um, 1985, add 50 years, that takes us to about 2035. So because I sort of go with what grandfather said, you know, I've gotten few expectations until 2035. But I think humanity by then might have evolved its consciousness sufficiently to actually understand what grandfather's saying. And anyone who's looking at it before that date, so that's you and all your fellows, you know, you're way ahead of the curve. So congratulations and well done on being here. You know, you guys are the superstars. And another thing I'd just like to mention as well is a sort of time scale. So it has been suggested to me, this doesn't come from me, it comes from other people, 
that Tolkien was very much writing and thinking about the past. He was a man who was actually immersed in the past. You know, it was the past that interested him. And he was, in a way, trying to revive the past a little bit. So he he was the, the writer of the past. Lewis was the, the writer of the present, you know, the then present. So Britain in that war, t- war period in the 1940s and 50s, explaining Christianity to the then audience of, of Britain. He was the man of the present. But grandfather was the author of the future. He was concerned about the future, where humanity was going in the future. And his eye was on the future. And this way of thinking about things takes us back to this kind of threefold thinking as well. You know, this awareness of the past to be aware of the future and to know where we are now. You know, this is a very kind of Barfieldian way of thinking. But um, I wanted to give that context there as well. And we'll be talking to people later in Barfield Month, particularly about your grandfather's influence on Tolkien and ancient semantic unities. Well, I look forward to to, listening to that. (laughs) Owen, thank you so much for coming on the show. Uh, Where can people go to find out more about your work with the literary estate and Owen Barfield in general? Where where should people begin? Okay, well, thanks for asking. I've got a website, which is the official website for the literary estate, which is owenbarfield.org. But there's also a Barfield Society, and and that's carried by a man called Jeff Hippolito, and he's in Washington State. So there is somebody stateside uh, looking into all things Barfield as well. And between us, we hope to sort of answer questions and, and sort of encourage people in this way. There are, there's also some academics who are starting to look into this. So at a more academic level, I think there's going to be a conference planned and things like that in the future. But I tend to stay stay out of the academics because um, they're running a much faster pace than I do. <laughs> well, thank you for joining us today, introducing us to your grandfather and some of his ideas. And we'd also like to thank all of our top tier supporters, Monique, Paul, Jake, Stephen, Matt, Jeff, Chris, John, James, Kate, and Rowdy. As always, check out Pints with Jack for news and swag. And Barfield Month continues next week, as we'll continue to look at the life and work of the first and last inkling, as I speak to Jake Greffenstedt. And please join us again then, when we'll be going further up... And further in. Cheers. Cheers. Cheers.